Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast for, about, and by women in the field of archaeology. On this episode, we're going to discuss the ongoing crisis with the construction of the border wall and the destruction of sacred sites, cultural resources, and fragile ecosystems. I'm Emily Long, and here with my fellow host, Chelsea Slotten, and we have a special guest who's an expert on this topic that we'll be discussing. And we're very excited to have Lakin Jordahl from the Center for Biological Diversity on our podcast. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, my so pleasure. Happy Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, good to be here. Happy to have you. And before we get uh, really into today's discussion, Lakin, can you tell us about yourself? Sure. Um... So uh, my name is Lakin. I uh, work with the Center for Biological Diversity uh, based on occupied autumn lands in Tucson, Arizona. Um, I've worked with the center for uh, just over three years now. And before I joined the center, uh, I actually worked with the National Park Service, which was my dream job in so many ways, um, all over the Intermountain West, um, basically putting together assessments of the biggest threats facing wilderness and wilderness character, which of course includes cultural, uh, archeological and historic sites. Um, so I was lucky enough to work at Organ Pipe, uh, at Big Bend, at Grand Teton, um, and at Capitol Reef. Oh, but wow. uh, not long after 2016, um, after uh, the new president came into office, it became pretty clear to me that I was going to have to take a more active role in fighting to protect these places if I really wanted to see them adequately protected. So I quit, mm-hmm. and uh, now I work with the Center for Biological Diversity, which is a great home for me in this current climate. What was it that made you specifically about this field of wanting to protect these places that you were just like, I got to I got to protect these places, just a deep love for them. What yeah, drew you that I mean, way? I think like so many kids, right. It was just my dream to be a park ranger. Um, the idea of, of getting mm-hmm. to spend time in these beautiful wilderness areas uh, and protect resources for future generations um, was really appealing to me. Um, of course, you know, a sense of, of adventure, I was also key to that desire for me. But yeah, I think from a very early age, um, you know, I grew up in, in Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, I had a wealth of, of just beautiful public lands and outdoor spaces to enjoy and kind of find myself in as a teenager. Um, and it was just so clear to me uh, that I wanted to, to make sure that future generations had the opportunity to also experience that, that, that glory. Um, so yeah, I've, I've always wanted to, to work in conservation also with a, a big focus on, on environmental justice um, and accessibility mm-hmm. uh, for people all across the country, not just wealthy white folks. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm sure the, the, the Park Service hat, you know, it's pretty cool too. You know, the park ranger, stiff hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was- I like, was very sad I didn't get one when I worked for the park. It. totally totally yeah it feels like you're joining this really cool club uh which i was honored to be a part of um but by the time the current administration took office um it was really clear there was a significant cultural shift happening in the agencies Mm -hmm. um i was directly asked to stop talking about climate change research in my reporting um you know i think because people didn't want to have that in the spotlight they feared that they would lose funding if it if it came to light that they were putting a lot of energy and time into climate change research. And um, yeah, it was kind of like a really serious reality check. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, Understandable. Not, not, not long into 2017, I, I ended up leaving for good. Yeah, there's been a lot Fair of cultural enough. shifts in the last three years. <laughs> yeah, I've still got a lot of friends who, who work for the agencies. Um, and I think they have endured the most difficult three years of their entire careers. I believe it. It seems pretty across the board for a lot of the federal agencies that there's such a, not only just like cultural shift, but I mean, a shift in the policy and the language and how things are done, Mm -hmm. that it seems to be moving away so much from the mission of those agencies to a point where it's it's really sad because it's like these places are meant to be protected. Exactly. So I, I, I completely sympathize for sure. And and so it sounds like that's what really drew you to the Center for Biological Diversity. And if you can, if you could tell us about the center, it sounds like a really unique place. Definitely. Yeah, it's it's uh, an amazing home. Um, essentially, environmental organization focused on protecting endangered species and their habitats. Um, and we got our start in the borderlands uh, in southern New Mexico, 
beginning to utilize the Endangered Species Act in a way that I think uh, up until that point hadn't truly been utilized in order to protect habitat, win lawsuits, stop timber sales, stop development projects, um, and actually use the Endangered Species Act to the full extent that the law was intended to be used to actually protect uh, these species and their habitats. And um, we've since expanded. We work all across the country and even have an international office in Baja, Mexico. Um, and wow. yeah, we're, we're, we're absolutely committed to stopping the wildlife extinction crisis. Um, and of course, that also has uh, a lot of uh, justice work within it. We do a lot of environmental justice work uh, as well. Yeah. It seems like you guys do a lot within the local communities within the environmental justice to help those communities. Is that right? Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. You know, we, we have an incredible team of attorneys and scientists, but we also have a lot of organizers on the ground that interface with the community um, that try and make sure people uh, have representation. Um, and, and yeah, it's, um, it's a really dynamic organization that I'm honored to work with. For the sake of our listeners, since we know there are multiple crises happening across the country, and it's a shame because I think this topic is getting overshadowed by the million other crises that are occurring, and this is mm -hmm. equally as important. Um, I was wondering if you could talk to what is happening along the border. Yeah, of course, um, so much is happening. And it's really interesting because I talk to people across the country who still aren't even sure if the border wall is being built. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like there's a lot of confusion. Uh, some people say, oh, I thought they were just replacing old wall. Um, and that is totally not true. Uh, the reality on the ground in Arizona is that we are seeing massive industrial scale construction projects rip through wildlife refuges, wilderness areas, national parks and monuments, um, and through indigenous sacred sites. Um, and this is happening almost across the entire Arizona border. All four states on the border have been hit with border wall construction and it's been devastating everywhere. Um, but Arizona has really taken the brunt of the impact. Um, and that's because in, in this paradoxical crazy world that we're living in, um, Arizona has all of the protected federal lands along the border. Uh, these, you know, again, are wildlife refuges and wilderness areas, places that the government uh, controls and is supposed to be the steward of, specifically because they are so incredible, so biologically important, have so much cultural and natural history. And now in this current world that we're living, uh, these are the exact places where border wall construction has been fast-tracked uh, because the federal government controls the land. Um, so we're watching these places be destroyed precisely because they are so special and irreplaceable. Uh, they're the ones that are that are being plowed over first. Um, and these are places like Oregon Pipe, where I used to work, uh, the Coronado National Memorial, another National Park Service unit, um, the San Bernardino Wildlife Refuge, the Cabeza Prieta Wildlife Refuge, um, and also a lot of national forest lands and Sky Island mountain ranges in Arizona, which are the key remaining Jaguar corridors uh, that Jaguars oh. use to cross between Sonora and Arizona. Um, so it's, yeah, it can't be, <laughs> can't be overstated uh, the impact of what's happening uh, today as we're talking right now yeah. in Arizona. Well, I was just going to say, I think that there's maybe some confusion when people think about the, you know, the construction that's happening and, and say, well, these are protected places. So why can't you do something like utilize the Endangered Species Act? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously there's legislation that allows construction to continue on anyways. I think part of that is the Real ID Act. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you speak a little bit about what legal things are allowing this to, to happen? Yeah, because it doesn't make sense. It makes absolutely no sense. And that's a staple of every aspect with border wall construction. Um, but specifically, uh, we're living in a world where none of the uh, environmental and cultural resource protection laws uh, apply to border wall construction. Um, the Endangered Species Act does not apply. The Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act does not apply. Archaeological Resources Protection Act is just gone into thin air. And these are laws that, I mean, you know how hard it is to pass a law through Congress? <laughs> like people <Yes. laughs> argued and deliberated and fought like hell. Some of these laws were like, you know, the, the, the centerpiece of, of, of an individual's political career. Um, and with the strike of a pen, they've been nullified uh, in order to rush border wall construction. Um, and the administration is using what I would call effectively a legal loophole 
that was tucked into this 2006 law called the Real ID Act. Um, it's just a Real couple ID? lines. The Real ID Act. So it's actually it's the same sweeping law that kind of determines how we get our IDs, and it's you know oh. about all that. But within that law, there's like three lines <laughs> of legislative text that say that the Secretary of Homeland Security can waive any law deemed necessary to expedite border wall construction. And, you know, we look back on, on the legislative history and the, and the debate around this law. It was clear that nobody knew what they were actually voting on. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of people thought that this would just apply to one section of border wall. Um, but this tiny provision tucked into this 15-year-old uh, law um, is now allowing border wall construction to happen uh, all across the border uh, with no adherence to federal law. It just has to be stated, like, the government can't waive laws to approve a mine, to build an Air Force base, to construct a highway. This is the only federal project uh, that they can just cast aside any law they please uh, in order to rush along. Um, and I think, of course, it's Bonkers. no coincidence that this is a project taking place on the U.S.-Mexico border where underserved and underrepresented communities um, have been brushed aside for generations uh, in order to uh, score political points. Um, and of course, these are also working class communities of color that now are not protected by the same laws that apply everywhere else across the country. So with uh, as being a federal archaeologist, it just it's mind boggling to me because I can't even put in a fence post, just a regular <laughs> little fence post for a barbed wire fence without going through the section 106 compliance system mm -hmm. and through for the national register or sorry, not national register, national historic Pre protect that preservation. Act. I can talk NHPA. So it just boggles my mind that like NEPA can be just overshadowed. Like you'd think you'd have to have some massive environmental impact statement or something for this border wall. And it's literally, it, it hurts. And I can imagine how much it hurts everybody else. That's like, how does this not apply with just Absolutely. this itty bitty law? And so ha has this been taken to court? Yes, many, many times. Um, you know, as, as an organization, we have, uh, we're, we do a lot of litigation. Those, those are a lot of the tools in our toolkit um, are these laws uh, that Congress has passed to protect places like Oregon Pipe. Um, but basically, all of the tools have been shaken out of our toolkit here. Um, and we have challenged the constitutionality of that waiver. Essentially, the Supreme Court declined to take up the case. Um, oh, and, and as, they, as why? Stand, <laughs> uh, they no, they did not say why. Um, they, you know, they get like so many cases every year and I think end up taking like one to two percent of them. Um, yeah. But as things stand right now, um, the borderlands remains a, a lawless place, uh, unlike anywhere else in the country. Um, but we'll, we're going to con continue fighting this, um, and, and we have you know some bold plans for next year. Um, we we can congressionally repeal this waiver authority, and there have been bills introduced to do exactly that. And I think you know if there's one thing that's been made clear in the last year is just how disastrous border wall construction is. I think people are finally waking up to the real world impacts uh, of the border wall, and I think there will be some momentum in the near future to actually repeal this act and make sure that nothing like this can ever happen uh, to the borderlands again. One thing for me, like looking at pictures of the construction, the corridor is so much larger than I would have imagined yeah. for the wall. Because I think for a lot of people, when they think border wall, they think like of a space not quite that large for building a large wall. And this, it, it looks wider than um, like a four lane highway. Yeah. And yeah. Why do they need such a large corridor for the construction? Because I can imagine if they were able to have a smaller footprint, that mm -hmm. might make a difference. But why do you know why they have such a large range of construction? That's a great question. And it's one that that the agency, uh, Department of Homeland Security, has completely failed to justify. Um, everywhere they're building the wall, they are bulldozing at least 60 feet uh, of earth north of the border. <sighs> Um, and again, this is a huge amount of ground disturbance uh, with no archaeological or cultural resource preservation laws in place. Mm -hmm. um, we have seen uh, dozens of archaeological sites at Oregon Pipe literally bulldozed. Um, and of course, they've sent out archaeologists to try and salvage things. But once these sites are destroyed, we'll, we'll never get them back. Right. Um, and there's just no way to keep up with the pace of construction. Uh, Department of Homeland Security uh says that they have archaeological monitors on site. Um, I've been out there 
every week over the past year, and I have yet to see a single monitor. And of course, what good is a monitor um, if, you know, even if they find something, they don't have uh, the authority through the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, the NHPA, and other laws to actually stop construction to salvage the mm-hmm. site. Um, I'd hate so, that yeah. job. Oh, I couldn't do it. I'd just be like, I would just be crying all the time, like, they just won't stop. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's just this huge dead zone, um, which is really ironic because Border Patrol says they're building uh, what they call an enforcement zone on the north side of the wall, which they're going to stake with ground sensors and blast with stadium lights, uh, oftentimes into wilderness areas, um, which is really ironic, right? Because the claim is that the border wall will stop people from crossing. So if the border wall is actually going to stop, why do they think they need an enforcement zone? None of this makes any sense. Um, it's destruction for destruction's sake. Um, and it's 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 just been heartbreaking across the board. Oh, man. Well, haven't yeah. they even shown that, like, with a ladder you can get over it? Or you can almost, like, a, like climb oh, it like yeah. a palm tree? Yeah, yeah. With a ladder, uh, with uh, an angle grinder, you can just cut through the wall. You can tunnel under <laughs> it. Um, within, within days of the new 30-foot-tall uh, border wall going up through Calexico, there were rope ladders hanging over it. Um, I mean... <laughs> This is not a solution. <laughs> this never so, was a solution. So there's not even the excuse like, but at least it's working. Totally. I mean, I think people across the country, you know, people in, in Iowa or whatever, uh, sleep better at night just knowing or thinking that there is some imposing physical barrier on the border. But if they actually came down and saw the landscape for themselves, if they saw how rugged and vast and beautiful these places were, there's no way <laughs> they would still believe that the wall is the answer. Right. Yeah. Well, it seems like that that kind of landscape, lack of water, that in itself is a large deterrent anyway, that yeah. it's not it's not just a big welcoming corridor where people just zoom on in regardless. Exactly. And, you know, historically, our border policies have pushed people into these landscapes with the explicit purpose mm-hmm. of inflicting death uh, and suffering on these people. Um, essentially, we, we built border walls and urban centers to push people to these desert areas. Uh, we thought that would deter them. Of course, mm-hmm. that fails to take into account that people who are fleeing violence, people who are walking across a continent to reach uh, our borders are not going to be deterred um, by uh, additional threats and violence. Uh, it's a life or death situation for them. Um, exactly. And they're definitely not going to be deterred by a tiny 30-foot wall you can climb over with a ladder in a matter of seconds. Yeah, and I mean, that's another crisis beyond what we're even getting much into today with the humanitarian crisis mm-hmm. of the border wall in terms of, like you're saying, how it pushes people into much more dangerous areas. And highly recommend uh, our listeners looking into uh, research that's been done on that. And there's also organizations that help migrants in those areas in terms of trying with water, food, resources and whatnot. But Definitely. And I'll just know that. Food. Oh, yes. Yeah, and, and these, these same policies that push people into the desert, um, they also push all this enforcement traffic into the desert. So mm-hmm. now we have Border Patrol vehicles driving literally thousands of miles off-road in designated wilderness through archaeological and historic sites, uh, ripping up sensitive soil biocrusts, trying to chase the people that we've pushed into these inhospitable terrain. Um, so there's there's just there's so many impacts, um, and I want to be mm-hmm. clear that the... the especially the, the impacts to archaeological sites, uh, to cultural history, um, that's far greater than just the wall. And border mm-hmm. enforcement actions at large um, have severe impacts on uh, preserving cultural resources at Organ Pipe and Cabeza Prieta and other federally protected lands. That's a really great point to end on for this segment. Uh, when we come back, we'll be getting more into what the Center for Biological Diversity does, what are current issues going on at the border, and we will be right back. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There are so many to choose from. Why not try Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archaeanimals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening.
Welcome back. We're going to continue our discussion about the border wall and destruction of sites, ecosystems, and so on with Lake and Jordal. It's our understanding that just in the last couple weeks, a lot is occurring at the border, more than what's happened even in even a few months, that it's all kind of come into a head recently. Can Lakin, can you tell us about what's going on? Yeah, certainly. So uh, I think the main thing that is pushing all of these new, new protests and kind of this escalating activity uh, between indigenous activists and the Park Service um, at Oregon Pipe is the fact that the border wall is quickly encroaching on a sacred spring, uh, a spring that has 16,000 years of continuous human habitation, a spring that is the only real oasis in this whole region of the Sonoran Desert, uh, a spring that's home to two endangered species, the Sonoida pupfish uh, and the Sonoida mud turtle. Um, and it's this oh, wow. miraculous place called called Quito Baquito, um, which is in the middle of Oregon Pipe, right on the border. Um, and the wall is is inching towards the spring uh, from both the west and the east. Um, and as the wall has gotten closer to that spring, uh, a lot more protests have have erupted. Horrifyingly, we've seen in the last month, uh, we've watched National Park Service rangers uh, arrest two indigenous women uh, for defending the land and the water at these springs. Um, and they actually threw these women in jail overnight during a pandemic. Uh, after only charging them with misdemeanors. Um, this was clearly a decision made by the Park Service uh, intending to punish uh, these Atham women for speaking out for their spring. Um, and I, you know, as someone who used to work at Oregon Pipe, it just, it's horrifying. It breaks my heart. It makes me sick to see some of my former colleagues now acting as the enforcers of mm -hmm. the border wall. Over the last year, uh, as wall construction has intensified at Oregon Pipe, people at the park have you know, very much remained neutral or passive. Um, there's a lot of clear political constraints around speaking out against mm -hmm. this project when you work for the federal government. Um, but in the last month, we've seen Oregon Pipe staff go from, you know, kind of somewhat complicit with construction to now being active uh, enforcers and participants in the destruction. Um, and last week, uh, the superintendent signed an order to close this entire section of the National Monument uh, to everyone, including tribal members um, who now are unable to access their sacred spring. Um, and that closure you order- Are they allowed to do that? Because it's my understanding that tribal mm -hmm. rights are quite different from just typical citizen rights in terms of access to park service, that they have uh, a larger access to sacred sites, collection sure. areas. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, and, and you know, the Park Service does have the authority technically to issue area closures for public safety. Um, but it's really clear that this area closure has nothing to do with public safety because there has been construction going on in this location for more than a year. There has been dynamite blasting. Uh, there has been <laughs> a huge amount of construction activity, which certainly is a safety hazard both to people and to wildlife. But the fact that the Park Service uh, signed this closure order uh, just after all of these protests started to erupt. Um, it's quite clearly intended to tamp down on these indigenous-led protests and to limit the media from documenting the damage as the wall goes up at Quito Baquito. And this closure oh. order was issued on Monday of last week, and the wall started going up there on Tuesday. Um, so it's just horrifying to see the Park Service now taking an active role um, in destroying the places that they have been <laughs> Uh, the stewards of the places that they're legally obligated to protect. Um, so it's been an extremely distressing week. <laughs> and, you know, we've heard from the superintendent at the park that they intend to have uh, a permitting process, uh, which through a case by case basis, they can uh, give permits to allow for uh, what he called the legitimate cultural uses uh, oh, of God. the spring. But that is a horrifying thought, you know, that we'd have this, non-Indigenous superintendent uh, approving or deciding what qualifies as a legitimate cultural use. That's bullshit through and yeah, through. Yeah. No, so, that is a, you do what we want you to do and the way we want you to do it, or we're not going to give you access. Like that's, that's a threat. Precisely. Precisely. And uh, the Tahanatham Nation uh, chairman was on a webinar this week um, and he 
quite clearly said that they were not notified of this in advance. Uh, the closure was imposed before there even was a system of permitting set up. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's just, it's been disgraceful. I mean, these are my former friends and colleagues. These are mm-hmm. people that care about the resource. You know, I fully believe that their their intentions are good. I believe that they've suffered through the worst years of their lives with mm-hmm. this administration. Um, but that does not justify becoming an active enforcer uh, of border wall construction. That does not justify throwing indigenous women trying to protect their own homelands in jail during a pandemic. Um, it's, it's, it's been extremely distressing. Um, and in many ways, it's just, it's been like watching uh, this agency and this national park just fall from grace. Um, and, yeah. and my heart breaks, my heart breaks every day, uh, reading the news and watching the videos. Uh, recently, there was a video that came out of a park service ranger uh, brutalizing peaceful protesters. He was taking swings at people he uh, reached for his gun on almost drew it and then instead went for his taser and pointed his taser at this crowd um, of peaceful protesters who were linked up in a chain on the ground. Um, and again, these are mostly indigenous folks uh, who have had no choice but to go put their bodies on the line because they've done this stuff the right way. They've objected in all the, the so-called correct ways to do so. Um, they've had their rights stripped away from them with these legal waivers. Um, and now they've had no choice but to put their bodies on the line in order to protect their sacred sites like Quito Baquito from border wall construction. Mm-hmm. I do think it's sometimes hard for um, people to understand, kind of like in trying to find a somewhat similar analogy to sacred sites for non-Indigenous peoples, like why that, why putting a wall near it is so damaging and I mean, it, for me, it's hard to come up with something and I've tried to think of like, think of your most beautiful cathedral and somebody decides to drive a highway through it. Yeah. And you yeah. have no choice. I, I, I Just seeing the images and whatnot of these park rangers harming, physically harming people, seeing these near the springs. It's just, it's so shocking and it's hard to try to, I'm sure it's hard to express to other people why this is so damaging, not only at the ecosystem level, but at the the heritage level for people who, this is still a living site. And how have have you guys tried expressing that to people who may not understand otherwise? Well, you know, in terms of Quito Vaquito, uh, (laughs) I think the miraculous nature of the springs is is sacred in itself to anyone. Mm -hmm. Water in the desert uh, this natural oasis. It's like a mirage in the middle of the hottest and driest desert uh, in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, also home to these miraculous turtles and pupfish that have, have weathered the storm and have evolved. Uh, to people live. should Google pupfish. They're the cutest little <laughs> weird fish. They're so cool. And they turn this beautiful, sexy shade of blue when they're trying to mate. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> like, they can live in water twice as salty as the sea. They're, yeah, they're, incredible creatures and right now water pumping for the border wall they're pumping millions and millions of gallons out of the ground in order to mix concrete for the wall um oh. that is significantly depleting uh from the spring, the spring? They're, they're from the same aquifer that feeds the spring um oh and there's God. just there's a great report published uh this week that basically proves beyond a shadow of a doubt um that the drop in spring flow is not strictly from drought. It's not from agricultural water pumping in Mexico, as the park service has often said. Um, it's directly resulting from this extraction of huge quantities of groundwater to mix concrete for the border wall. Um, and again, like <laughs> no aspect of this wall construction would be legal if the normal laws like the Endangered Species Act were in place. Um, or, or NEPA. I mean, they would have had to truck in water. Exactly. And that's what I, I just, I guess I assumed that's what they would do. Yep. Yeah, oh you, you would you would think that. <laughs> um, and that's so that's just the biological uh, wonder of this place. Uh, the cultural history of Quito Baquito um, is so incredibly rich. Um, up until the 1950s, there was actually a Hiachad Atam family that still lived there. Um, they, wow. they farmed there. It was this beautiful living landscape where we had, uh, you know, cultural use and farming coinciding alongside with uh, endangered species living at the mm-hmm. spring. Um, you know, the Park Service uh, made life so difficult for that family that they were finally forced to sell their land uh, to the park 
with with the intention of you know protecting this place uh mm-hmm. and now we're watching the place be destroyed uh and the park service be completely complicit with that destruction it's a really interesting history um of quito Baquito. and and right now the wall's going up there and the light poles are going up there and this tiny spring which it's about 150 feet from the border it's going to be blasted with floodlights all night long it's going to destroy this habitat for uh, for nighttime pollinators, for bats and birds. And of course, the wall is going to go up along the south side of it, which will stop all wildlife south of the border uh, from coming to this spring to drink like they've done for millennia. Yeah. So there was a, a photo that came across my timeline, um, both you know, Twitter, Facebook, I can't remember which platform, um, that was really kind of heart-wrenching of, uh, I think it was a deer, who had died and was just kind of lying against the the border because they were trying to get to a water source. Um, And now there's just this giant wall in the way, Um, you know, and and animals don't recognize state borders or the difference between protected or unprotected land, you know, and I mean, obviously all life is sacred, Um, Mm -hmm. but the, I guess the PR impact of like a cute fuzzy animal. Um, you know. Yeah, it's it's a heartbreaking picture, and that that picture was taken at Oregon Pipe. Um, okay. For folks who haven't seen it, um, I mean, it's it's this this mule deer that is dead right in the shadow of the border wall, um, and almost certainly it was hit by a construction vehicle as it was wandering back and forth along this wall. Um, it was found dead in August, in the hottest and driest month of the year. We had almost no monsoons this year, so wildlife were uh, extremely taxed. And and oftentimes at Oregon Pipe, we'll see animals migrate south uh, across the border um, during hot and dry weather in order to drink uh, water. There's some agricultural fields south of the border near Sonoita in Mexico. Um, and this deer was almost certainly doing what it does when it's hot and thirsty. Um, and, and wandering south um, as as they've done for for millennia without being impeded by this massive landscape scale obstruction, um, you know people say oh wildlife will find a way around. Um, mm. That's ridiculous. Uh, on well, a number of they're being levels. built to not let people. How would exactly. wildlife get through? And we're 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 looking at the situation where we're going to see the vast majority of the Arizona border covered by thirty foot concrete and steel wall. Um, and there are no wildlife crossings. Um, the wall doesn't just end in certain places. I mean, we're looking at at hundreds of miles of contiguous barrier that will stop the migration of all terrestrial species bigger than a, than a pocket mouse um, dead in their tracks. Has there been any appeal? And I'm sure there has been just asking for own notification. Of the Has there been appeal to senators or whatnot up to come to the border and see what's going on? Or is it just because they're like, there's just so much going on. It's just for a lot of them, a non-issue. I mean, certainly there's gotta be people who care. Yeah. We've done it. Who are in positions of power. Certainly. Certainly. Um, Yeah. And we've done a a lot of congressional outreach. Um, You know, we basically got Congress to refuse to fund the border wall. (laughs) They took a number of votes and they did approve uh, about a total of $5 billion for wall construction in the earlier budgets, um, mm-hmm. which that was devastating. But most of those walls uh, were slated for South Texas. Um, some of them were going through wildlife refuges and really important areas. But Congress, time and time again, refused to fund border wall construction uh, in Arizona, through wilderness land, through national monuments. Um, and at that point, uh, the president signed the emergency declaration and stole $15 billion from Department of Defense budgets in order to build these walls. Um, mm. So we have a situation where Congress has no say. Uh, also, <laughs> the, the, the courts have no say because all of the laws that would typically apply have been cast aside. So no. when it comes to the border wall, this is like the definition of single branch government. The executive branch is making all of these decisions um, free of any consent from Congress and free of any of the normal laws uh, applying. Uh, so this is, I mean, this is a prime example of, of autocracy. And I think this is the framework that this administration will apply uh, everywhere else in the country as soon as they get the chance. Um, I mean, this is, this is the dream 
of, of people who are against environmental protections. Uh, this is the blueprint for what they're going to do everywhere else as soon as they get the chance. Mm-hmm. And so the really the only way to really put a halt to this would then be the real ID. Act. Correct. Okay. If, if, if I just feel like I'm going in circles. I'm like, okay, wait, how about now? What about this? Uh. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, even the Senate, the Senate has voted uh, multiple times to terminate the, the, the bogus emergency declaration. Um, and a number of Republican senators have joined the Democrats uh, to really? vote for that. Correct. Um, huh. it, it has not reached a veto-proof majority, um, which would require two-thirds. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we have a lot of, of Republicans who are also against um, specifically the pillaging of, of funds, of unappropriated funds. Um, you know, there was a time when, when Republicans were very much against executive overreach. Um, that time seems like it's passed, but <laughs> there are still a number of, of folks who, who will go to bat for that. This might be a, a topic for the next segment, but I can always stop and start again. But I'm just kind of curious. So with all of this material getting pushed to the side as they're busting through this land, what happens to the the archaeological material, the the soir cacti, the the things that they're pushing away for this wall? What happens to all this material? Yeah. I mean, you'll see these giant piles of rotting cactuses, ancient ironwood trees, uh, tons of dirt, uh, just bulldozed to the side of, of uh, the construction area. Um, every time I go down there, I see freshly butchered cactuses. Um, we've seen hundreds, if not thousands, um, of swaros and organ pipes uh, just destroyed for this project. And these are protected plants. They're culturally significant plants. They're critical, critical to the function of the ecosystem. Um, and, and, you know, in Arizona, it's illegal to harm a swaro. You could face jail time if you drive mm-hmm. your car into a swaro. Uh, so to watch the federal government come in and just slaughter this massive quantity of, of, of sacred cacti, uh, it's devastating. Um, and of course, you know, they're, they're destroying homes for thousands of, of, of different individual wildlife. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, it goes without saying that these, these cactuses are deeply, deeply sacred to the Atham and, and other tribal nations. They're continuously used uh, for ceremonies. Um, and I know, you know, some of my Atham friends have told me that they, they see these faro cactuses as the embodiment of their ancestors. Um, so taking, driving down to the border and, and seeing just these cactuses chopped up, discarded with utmost disrespect. Um, I mean, they've told me it's like seeing, seeing a dead relative. Uh, it's devastating. I mean, just thinking of the saguaro in itself as such like an emblem of Arizona. Yeah. That in itself, I'm sure, is it's hard to see everything. But I can imagine with the different connections to just saguaro in itself and seeing it destroyed, I can't imagine then at the larger scale of all of the things. Like, here you have just one type of plant. What about everything else, too? And I'm sure the combined destruction is just heartbreaking. Yeah. It absolutely is. And, you know, last spring, that was kind of when they were, were, I guess, inflicting the most damage uh, in terms of clearing that land. Um, and there were just, there were dozens of swaros that had been plowed over that had their beautiful cactus blossoms uh, just about to open. Um, but they had been taken out before they could open. Um, and there's just, there's just something so upsetting about seeing that. There's no reason. No reason. No reason at all. Um, and you know they they could be transplanting these cactuses. They could be oh, they can uh, be transplanted, protecting them in place. Yeah, and the Park Service did. Um, they have transplanted some of them, um, but that that the, the number that I've seen uh, butchered and chopped up on the ground far outnumbers uh, that the ones that I have seen transplanted. I just didn't even know that was a possibility for for sort like that they can be. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a Herculean uprooted. effort. Not always successful. The taproot takes uh, a long time to reestablish, and in a lot of cases, uh, the cactus can die a slow death after being transplanted. So, all of the ones that have been transplanted, we need to monitor carefully uh, for a number of years. Um, and some of the ones that have been transplanted are already standing dead. Sadly, on that note, 
note, we uh, need to end with this segment, but when we come back, we'll keep discussing these issues, but also a call to action and try to figure out what can we do to hopefully make some positive change in this situation. We'll be right back. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts, as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Welcome back. We're going to continue our discussion, and we're going to start with the fact that there is, it sounds like there's a great deal of dynamite blasting that is occurring daily, and I found that so surprising. Lakin was telling us about it a little bit during the break, and just imagining the level of ground disturbance on our on the cultural side of thing, just, it it's blowing my mind. And so, yeah. Lakin, if you could discuss a little bit about what's going on in terms of just like the daily blasting that they're doing. Yeah, every day uh, as we speak, uh, even on the weekends, and now starting 24 hours a day, uh, yeah. there's there's just a huge amount of industrial scale construction happening on the border. Um, and more and more, that is including uh, a severe amount of dynamite blasting. Uh, mountains are being blown up literally every day. Um, and that's because a lot of the, the, the more flat areas where it's easier to build walls have already been completed. Um, so now, you know, now that it's October, mm. we're seeing wall construction push into some of the most remote, rugged, uh, beautiful and biologically diverse places uh, along the border. Um, and there's, there's some folks uh, who are documenting this. Uh, there's one, one person named John Kirk who's flying his drone every day and trying to document the dynamite blasting. Uh, because he's so horrified that it's in place. Um, and I, I, I repost a lot of these videos uh, on my Twitter. Um, Ooh, how can but people it is, find you uh, on Twitter? Uh, just Google me or look me up on Twitter, Lake and Jordal. Um, I post photos and videos from the border almost every day. Um, and that really is, you know, the platform that we utilize in order to get information to journalists and the public. Um, I'm, I'm not a social media person, but I have uh, really found a lot of value. Uh, in using Twitter really as an archive uh, of mm -hmm. all of the information happening and also of the resistance efforts to the border wall. Um, and so his drone, and I'm sure other people are trying to document as well, it sounds like? Correct, yeah, and we've, we've been out there to film it. Um, in, you know, the first blasting took place last spring, and that was when uh, DHS was blowing up a place called Monument Hill in Oregon Pipe, which is an Otham sacred site uh, with indigenous burial grounds on this hill. And the tribal chairman of the Otham Nation said that he was not notified until the day that the blasting started. And they couldn't um, avoid the hill? Like, couldn't, <laughs> like, literally, they couldn't just put it a few miles a different way or another? Like I said, everything about this project defies logic. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it would be easy to not build on the hill. Uh, if they were really trying to, to secure the border, which I don't think they're even trying to do. I don't think they even care about that anymore. All they care about is maximizing the mile count. Um, yeah. If they really cared about that, they could station agents, uh, two agents on the hill uh, in perpetuity, and that would be exponentially less expensive than building the wall. Um, so none of this makes any sense, um, but we're seeing a huge amount of damage. I mean, every day I'm sent a new video of pristine wilderness land in eastern Arizona being blown up. Um, and these are like <laughs> the explosions you see in the movies we're watching entire hillsides uh, crumble away and a lot of this debris flying into Mexico um, you know again none of this would ever be legal if the normal laws were in place um, I've never seen cultural resource monitors out there where they're doing the blasting um, and what it's happened to the bodies <laughs> um, at, at in terms of Monument Hill um, I, I, I believe the grave sites were not directly within the vicinity of the blasting, but they're, they're archaeological sites up there, and they had oh. failed to do the proper surveys before going in with the dynamite. Oh um, so we don't know uh, the degree of, of, of what's been lost, um, but we do know that, that the cultural record, the archaeological record, uh, now has just a massive gaping hole in it. And at Oregon Pipe and other places along the border, I just want to know, I mean, only 8% of Oregon Pipe has actually been surveyed. 
Uh, so we don't know what we're losing. And that seems largely a large uh, issue for most federal agencies. Um, most of the ones I worked for, I worked for a forest that was 1.4 million acres. And I think they said less than 1% had been surveyed. So it's not an uncommon issue to have no clue what's fully out there. Just There's something that it just seems so wrong that we're able to destroy a place uh, before we truly know the value of, of the historical record there. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that, you know, we have laws that stop that from happening, but they don't apply here in this situation. Right. And I think for those who may not be familiar, as familiar with the archaeology of Arizona, like how insanely culturally, archaeologically rich some of these areas are like just such unique cultures and ways of living in the desert. And then there was contact with Mesoamerica and it's like ball courts and irrigation. I mean, it's just like, there's stuff everywhere. Like it's amazing. And I'm not an archeologist, but um, you know, that's okay, I guess. (laughs) But no, but being out there and walking through Oregon pipe, I mean, you see flakes, you see quarries, like even to someone who's untrained, uh, it's such a rich place uh, with cultural history. Well, I think it's also worth noting, I mentioned earlier that, you know, animals don't necessarily follow borders uh, or know where borders are, but it's also a border that jumped people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so that there are mm-hmm. cultural groups, there are families on, on either side um, that are one that historically would have been um, you know, Mexican, yeah, uh, part of Mexico, and yeah, you know, it's not just it's keeping people from their heritage on the other side of an artificial construct of a modern Western nation state. Exactly, yeah. and it's also slicing through uh, traditional uh, ceremonial routes. Um, every year, they, they they there's a pilgrimage that they take um, called the Salt Run. Mm-hmm. And they cross the border and they run all the way to the Sea of Cortez in Sonora and they gather salt from the salt flats there and they bring it back for ceremonial uses. Um, and oftentimes this is like a coming of age ceremony for, for Otham youth. Um, and they run across the border at Quito Boquito Springs. Um, and they've done this, as they say, from time immemorial. Um, and now the first time uh, there's going to be a wall in their path as they make that annual uh, ceremonial pilgrimage. Um, and it's hard to describe that just how uh, deeply offensive uh, that has to be. Um, it's, it's, it's just enraging. Mm-hmm. And the tribes asked for gates in the wall. The tribe has asked, you know, the, the park service, uh, the tribes, the fish and wildlife service have, have offered so many mitigations. Um, they've, they've pleaded with the department of Homeland security uh, to, to make even the smallest mitigations or deviations in the walls path. And every single one of those requests has been completely ignored. And unfortunately, I think that just highlights, again, a very long history of injustices towards indigenous peoples in the United States, that it's still an ongoing issue. Yeah, absolutely but, but agree. To, to turn, hopefully, towards a more positive direction for you, what does justice look like in the future for these areas? Well, we've got a long list of grievances. <laughs> Let me yes. tell you what. <laughs> um, you know, first and foremost, uh, I think the U.S. government will owe a great debt to indigenous nations uh, yes. who have had cultural resources obliterated and destroyed uh, along the border to make way for the wall. Uh, I the hope there's so many ARPA cases. It'd be amazing. Yeah. Take the and government I, to court. I want to... We, 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 and we're already working on uh, some some legislation that would restore these lands and effectively provide reparations for tribal nations and border communities, um, as well as rip down sections of wall in wildlife refuges, national monuments, um, and places where the wall is causing the most damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if, you know, if there's one thing that has happened <laughs> this year um, is that the whole concept and the idea of the border wall um, like the veil has been pulled off and I think the American public is seeing it for what it is, which is a symbol of, of racism, of vitriol, mm-hmm. a total non-solution uh, for the crisis of, of, of wealth inequality. I think there will be 
the political will uh, to get justice for the borderlands. I think there will soon be the political will to actually rip down these sections of wall and repurpose all of that steel. Um, I think, especially with you know the Black Lives Matter movement that arose this summer, um, it's been really inspiring to watch the public at large start understanding these deeper causes of, mm-hmm. of injustice and wanting to address them. Um, so I, I <laughs> despite such a severe amount of destruction and heartbreak and heartache, um, I do have hope for the future. Um, and I think that all of us uh, need to continue raising this issue um, into the future and, and reminding everyone, like we, we can't forget about these injustices and we have to right these wrongs. Um, and finally, 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 uh, give border communities and tribal nations on the border the respect that they deserve. And so like you were saying, with raising awareness, what can we do on our end to help you and your organization continue raising awareness? Well, for one, I think uh, we can't turn away our attention from the borderlands. Uh, mm-hmm. This president is gone. Um Border injustice has has long predated this president. Um, border wall construction for a long time had total bipartisan support. Um, and still we see a lot of, of, of politicians who we consider to be more progressive advocating for uh, border security technology, when in reality that's also a non-solution. And even so-called smart walls have their own set of environmental impacts and lots of impacts on on civil rights and civil liberties of border communities. Um, it's a I smart think, wall? <laughs> um, it's kind of like what people call a smart wall, which is certainly not smart, nor is it a solution. Like Alexa, open wall. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, it's all these, these, these uh, virtual uh, surveillance towers, and it's like a system of, of, of uh, technology that detect people who are moving through the landscape. And for all intents and purposes, we already have that in place. Uh, we spent billions of dollars on surveillance technologies, uh, infrared sensors and cameras, um, and, and that already is uh, playing a role in pushing migrants to their deaths, um, militarizing the land, and also destroying the environment. Um, but I think you know, in the long run, we need to take a hard look at this country's immigration policy, mm-hmm. um, really come up solutions, uh, not distractions, which is what this border wall is, uh, but solutions that help people practice the right not to migrate. You know, people don't walk across Mexico and through the desert because they want to. Uh, it's, it's because uh, they've been forced to, in many cases, by our own country's foreign policies that fail to respect uh, local economies and autonomy. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, just continuing to talk about this issue and advocate for uh, for, for restoration and reparations um, into the future uh, when it comes to defense. You bring up an excellent point. I mean, it is definitely a multi-tiered situation where it's not just not having a wall. It's not just fixing immigration policy. It's not just fixing international policy. It's, not, it's like there's so many components of it. It's complicated. Yeah. It's not it's just not. one easy solution. And I'm guessing this administration was just like, build a wall. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the beauty of it, right? It's like the most simple solution to the most complex problem. Um, like, and I think that, you know, specifically appeals to simple-minded folks who, who want <laughs> simple solutions to complex problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the world that we live in. Um, and I think more and more people are waking up to that fact and realizing that um, collectively, we need to do some serious soul searching. Um, and, and, and we need to redefine our values as a country um, and orient them towards, towards justice and towards recognition of all of the injustices that this very country and these very systems that we're, we're in were, were founded upon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I do see a lot of hope, like you mentioned earlier, with the Black Lives Matter movement and the awareness that people are starting to have of what's going on at the border, but mm-hmm. also that the border... Is, is a very lived in space because I certainly know, granted, you know, I was in elementary school a couple decades back, um, but a lot of that kind of early school curriculum, at least, you know, when I was younger, which was a while ago, but not that long ago, 
very much talked about. You're 97, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. I'm Mm. approaching my centennial. No, I'm 32. Um, (laughs) You know, but but talking about these indigenous cultures as if they Uh were historical, as if they were in Mm -hmm. the past. So like recognizing that there are lived indigenous cultures that are vibrant and exciting and harmed by what's happening Um, yeah yeah and i think i mean i'm deeply inspired by so many of my indigenous activist friends uh i am invigorated by the land back movement um i think you know my future vision my dream for oregon pipe is that it becomes an international peace park which is co-managed which is across the border this stunning wilderness area in mexico that um actually is just as incredible, if not more so than Oregon Pipe itself, um, and that tribal nations play an equal role to both federal governments in management and all management decisions. Um, like, we, so could, cool. could that. we could make that happen. <laughs> um, and I think that's what justice looks like, right? Um, and that's what we need to, to shoot for and settle for nothing less. Mm-hmm. Would it be hard to create something like that? I, I've honestly have never heard of that, an international peace park. So there is an international peace park uh, on the Canadian border, Glacier Water. You can backpack across the borderline <laughs> and you don't have to talk to any customs agents. <laughs> um, it's Yeah, it's spectacular. And it's it's this sign of, of goodwill and it's a sign of, of recognition that we share the same resources. We depend on the same environment to survive. And I, I certainly think that we're going to need to look at, at solutions like that in order to repair our relationships with uh, nations like the Atom, um, and also with, with our friends across the border in Mexico. Um, there's <laughs> going to be a, a huge amount of reckoning to do in the coming year. Um, and like we talked about earlier, the, the, the Park Service actually stopping Indigenous people from accessing their sacred sites, arresting them, throwing them in jail. I'm, I'm deeply concerned that all of this is going to set uh, Oregon Pipe's relationship with the tribes back decades. Um, and I think uh, that the park now uh, owes the tribe a great debt and is really going to have to pull through uh, for for these folks in the future to make up for, for the atrocities that they've participated in and perpetrated against these people. Moving in a little bit of a different direction, are there ways that we can help support the Center for Biological Diversity in terms of following your guys' programs? Um, do you take donations? Are there other organizations we should consider supporting and donating to as well? Absolutely, yeah. So um, certainly follow the center's work. Uh, we do a lot of amazing cross-campaign work, uh, ranging from fighting utility shutoffs during a pandemic and making sure people have access to, to heat oh, wow. <laughs> uh, to protecting uh, endangered species across uh, the country and the world. Um, so, so please follow our work. Uh, please follow me on Twitter. Um, I, I post updates every day from the Borderlands. Um, and while we would gladly accept your donations, um, I would I would plead with people to actually donate directly to the indigenous activists that are on the ground fighting border wall construction. Um, and you can follow them um, on Instagram um, or Facebook. Uh, the, the Facebook account is called the Autumn Anti-Border Collective. And I'm sure you guys can link to these accounts. Oh, definitely. Yeah. My main Instagram to follow is called Defend Autumn Joed. And Joed is spelled J-E-W-E-D. And that means land in Autumn. I would also um, say, as I think has become a reoccurring theme of my own, <laughs> at least at the end of um, All our these problems. episodes. But, but go vote. Um, you know, we're recording this about a month before, you know, the next general election. And if you are as infuriated and incensed as we are about this, if you are a fraction of as infuriated or incensed about this as we are, um, vote for change. Absolutely. That is an excellent, excellent point to end on. Lakin, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an amazing discussion, and we definitely hope you can come back and talk with us again. Yeah, heavy stuff, but it's really a joy to talk with you both. Thank you. Yes. Important, important information. And 
If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please follow us. Um, you can find us at the women in Ar- womeninarchaeology.com where our podcasts and blogs are. You can follow us at womenarchies on Twitter. And if there are any other topics you would like us to discuss or if you yourself would like to come on our podcast, please contact us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. This has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you both for being on here. And until next time, everybody stay safe and healthy. Yeah, you too. It's so good to have you on. Second that. Awesome. Yeah, my pleasure. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.